0: Morning Glory, America. It is the last radio hour of the week on the Hugh Hewitt Show. That means it is the Hillsdale Dialogue. Every week at this time, I sit down with either Dr. Larry Arnn, president of Hillsdale College, or one of his wonderful colleagues from the Kirby Center, Dr. Matt Spaulding, or one of his wonderful faculty in Hillsdale, Michigan, which is actually part of the United States, not part of Canada. People often forget that. And we talk about great issues, great books, great Great debate. Dr. Larry Arn is, in fact, in the Hillsdale studio with me today. And, Dr. Arn, good to see you in person. Good to see you, too. I want to begin by playing for you an interview that Gary Oldham, you you may be aware of him. He is an actor. Yes,
1: yes, I know about
0: him. He plays Winston Churchill in a new movie.
1: Coming to Hillsdale, Michigan, December 16th. Uh, Gary Oldham is? Yes. Really? Yes. What? Because you may be aware or not aware, oh, ignorant host, that... Uh, <laughs> That uh, I visited the set while they were making that thing. There was a special screening of it in December with him there in
0: Hillsdale. We we learned about that. We learned about that. In fact, I want to play for you some audio of Gary Oldham talking about the making of the movie, Uh, what is it, Never Surrender? It's called Darkest Hour. Darkest Hour. I saw a trailer for it yesterday, and we'll talk about that in a second. Here is the actor. Here is the actor, Gary Oldham. I needed to see Churchill
2: looking back at me in the mirror to really for me to have the, the, the chutzpah, you know, to mm-hmm. get up there and, uh, and, and do him justice. And we found a lovely, there's a lot of Churchill, there's some of mm-hmm. me, there's mm-hmm. a bit, you know, we, we, found a good, we found a good balance. So that was, the, that was the first step. And then, of course, as you say, there's over 500 books written about this man. Um, where do you start? So I located a, a historian, a Churchill expert, Larry Arn, mm. and he guided me to very you know specific things to read, and you slowly start to build, build the character because you have an I had an idea in my head of of being British too of, of, of who Churchill was, but some of that is influenced by people that have played him. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I, so I pushed that all to one side, and and found, surprisingly enough, a a, a great deal of footage, um, archival footage Mm -hmm. of him, and from and from that I then built.
0: You know, you build. You start to sort of build. I found this historian, Larry (laughs) (laughs) R. What does that mean?
1: Well, you know, he. I saw this curious man. And he was walking around, turning rocks up. And I thought, what are you looking for? <laughs> First of all, that was a brilliant setup. I didn't know he said that. Um, that's yeah, why I do this show. I, I, <laughs> a, and Matthew yeah. was involved with it. We, we didn't know, set you up. I'm, I'm hard to trick. But it, it took you and Dwayne and that scoundrel And Duane. Matt Spalding. Yeah, yeah, and Matt Spalding. <laughs> these guys are three disreputable guys. I want the audience to know. Machiavelli himself would be embarrassed by what they just did. So I've known Gary Oldman for quite a long time, and I know well, and for a long time, his sort of partner and producer, Doug Urbanski. And I just think Gary Oldman is a great guy. He's a modest guy. I think he's a tremendous actor. And uh, I heard about this movie, and they uh, they said, if you're coming over, come watch us film it. And, you know, my wife is English, so we went, and we visited. Anyway, I think we talk about that. But... Uh, I think people will like the movie. And the first thing I noticed about it was, you know, Winston Churchill was quick and lively. And, you know, until he was old, he was very athletic. He was a tremendous polo player. He was the top fencer in school. At Sandhurst. Uh, well, no, at, uh, at uh, Harrow. Okay. Uh, we have a kid coming. He'll go from Harrow next year. Uh, isn't that interesting? Um, so he... he uh, he plays him the first clip I saw, he was moving and his eyes were sparkling. And so he wasn't this guy talking with his chin down in his chest, growling at everybody. And I just went, Wow, at last
0: you Someone know gets it. Well, it was said about Spielberg's Lincoln that the the greatest grace of the film, of which there were many, is that it got you close to being in a room with Abraham Lincoln for two hours. Yeah. Do you think Oldham allows people like me who I've seen newsreel galore but you know you don't really experience the war the newsreel to be in the room with Churchill
1: oh yeah and it's uh there's only uh yeah it does as a matter of fact and uh, uh, first of all these are extremely tense days right these are not typical days in Churchill's life these are among the greatest days in human history
0: darkest hour the, being Germans, 19, are coming, the right? Germans are coming
1: but then there the, those moments that show you know Churchill was fun, and friendly, and big-hearted. And so that occurs in
0: there. So, yeah, you do get to be with him. In the trailer that I saw yesterday, Kenneth Branagh has a movie out, Murder on the Orient Express, which is delightful, but it's not. It's puffy. It's pastry. It's not meaty. But it had a trailer attached to it for Darkest Hour. Mrs. Churchill is completely... Wonderfully portrayed as I hope she actually was, though perhaps a little less robustly built than Mrs. Churchill actually was. did you see her film as well? what did you make of her take?
1: Well, I've seen the whole thing uh, in New York and i after it was made, and i I saw that in September, I think but uh yeah, she's great, and uh, she she especially at this time, you know by the time nineteen forty comes along, Churchill is sixty five and he's been married since nineteen oh eight. So, in their 33rd year of marriage, and they're, they're an old married couple, right? They're, they're like, they you know,
0: anticipate each other's words.
1: Yeah. You, you and I have learned obedience. Yes. And it's been so good for us, yes. right? And, uh, and, and so it, it's, so she is stable. And she, you know, sometimes she had a lot of trouble in her own life too, but in these months, she was truly. A rock. And she, she wrote him a letter in the middle of this time, just a little short note, you know, with a, Picture of the cat drawn at the bottom. He was the cat. He was the pig. And uh, they could both draw very well, right? So you got kind of artful-looking little things at the bottom of their letters between each other. And, uh, And she says, you know, you're sour, and you bark at people, and you've got to stop that because they only want to help you, and they look up to you, and you dispirit them.
0: You've got to stop. And he did. (laughs) <laughs> Did he really stop dispiriting people? It is it is a a problem with great leaders through history that they are often indifferent to their scribes.
1: Well, <laughs> well, no, the uh, so the people who worked around Churchill were deeply loyal to him as a rule, almost always. So there's a woman named Kathleen Hill, and uh, she went with him. There, you know, all these secretaries are like this, Mrs. Pearman, and you know they worked for him to exhaustion, and uh, they they record that. Watching him dictate his speeches and taking them down, it was like going to the greatest performance you could go to. Uh. And that they learned that uh, he did not like to be interrupted. You were not to make a noise. But also, he liked to have you there. Uh, once, uh, he barked at one of his secretaries. You know, he, I mean, just think what he did. Remember, Winston Churchill wrote 50 books. And they're good, right? And he did everything else he did, too. Wrote all his own speeches. The correspondence is massive. He wrote that, right? So he was an incredibly productive human being and he didn't like, and he hurried himself all day long. So he barked at the secretary and she got a tear in her eye and he noticed it and, and he reached over and touched her on the arm and he said, don't mind me. We're all toads under the harrow.
0: So he's, he's aware of his impatience, which is itself a saving grace about him. And it, I am looking so forward to this movie, and I hope uh, it receives the Oscar. There are a lot of fine movies this year. There are a lot yeah. of superb acting performances out there. Willem Dafoe in The Florida Project is amazing. There are a few others that are, that are escaping me right now, but it will be hard on critics to credit Oldham, I think, because they're not going to like the idea of liking
3: Churchill.
1: Yeah, I you know, it just so happens that I talked to some people who are, you know, promoting the movie whose job is to do that. And I said, Look, who are you worried about offending? The Nazis? <laughs> you know I, mean? I mean, the bad guys in this movie are the Nazis. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, but, but they're not gonna like the idea of liking Churchill because he stands for a, a conservatism that is not on our spectrum today. It's a it's not it's a character conservatism.
1: Well I hope. That there's And see, I encourage people away from that. And the reason was, first of all, Churchill was not a naturally partisan man. Churchill was always trying to build a party of the center. Second, Churchill brought the socialists into the government and, and treated them with great respect and worked with them very closely all through the war. And so in his understanding, a war against Nazism is the thing against which we can
0: all unite. When we come back from break, we're going to talk about that. Churchill was not that much of a partisan. He was a partisan. He was a party man, but he was not crazed by it. And it's an important lesson, especially in the times in which we live right now as we are on the precipice of watching the Republican Party throw itself off of a 50-story building. Uh, I'll talk about that with Dr. Larry Aron when we come back. Don't go anywhere, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's the last radio hour of the week. That means it's the Hillsdale Dialogue. That hour of the week set aside when I sit down with Dr. Larry Aron, president of Hillsdale College, or one of his colleagues. All things Hillsdale are available at hillsdale.edu. All of our conversations dating back to 2013 now are found at hugh doctor Aron, we went to break... um, I was about to tell you about yesterday, on Thursday's Hugh Hewitt show, I had Senator Pat Toomey, he's a very good man, on, and I expressed to him my growing dismay with the Senate of the United States and that four senators, Senators Collins, McCain, Murkowski, and Rand Paul, had destroyed the promise of the Republican Party to repeal and replace Obamacare and that on Thursday morning, Ron Johnson announced he wasn't going to vote for the tax bill, which endangers the tax bill. And i I basically distraught that a party cannot act as a party. And what is, and that the Senate is completely, it's not McConnell. McConnell's a fine leader. It's that individuals arrive in this town, and they begin to believe that they are the only people with the keys to the kingdom, that they don't in any way owe the party anything.
1: Yeah. So, uh, first of all, Mitch McConnell is a very intelligent man, and I'll bet he's a reader of C.S. Lewis, and I bet then he knows that C.S. Lewis makes the argument it is always hard at any given moment to tell whether or not we're in purgatory. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: never heard that. <laughs> so
1: he must be thinking, you know, <laughs> what's going on here. So, think of the logic of the situation. Uh, the uh Congressional Budget Office is a very bureaucratic agency, right? And it's a, it it might be made up of accountants, but they lack a sense of humor. And so they uh so they they score these things according to rules that are simply crazy and extremely unfavorable to any conception of human freedom. Yes. Now, they score this thing to reduce the tax burden on the American people by $1.4 trillion in round numbers uh, over 10 years, which, of course, any such estimate is laughable. It is. You know, what's it's your absurd. budget over the next 10 years, right? Can't it's absurd. Ca- you can't even calculate your own, right? But never mind, they score it that way. And what that means, and they count nothing, nothing for the fact that that $1.4 trillion would be left in private hands where all the wealth in human history has been produced and is produced every day in America. And so, first of all, if you have even an important objection to this, if you believe in limited government, why would you not vote for this thing? And, and the particular objection that's named by Senator Johnson is it treats corporations better than it treats individuals and the individual businesses, privately held businesses, personally held, I guess you'd say. And the point is fix that next. Why not? It, uh, so I don't, uh, I am amazed and chagrined and am, uh, Keeping my fingers crossed, my prayer said that uh, Leader McConnell will put it back together.
0: Let me, let me pose to you, not in the context of any individual senator, but generally, what I have diagnosed the problem to be. I've been back in Washington a year now, and it is an incredible ego inflator to live here. And people talk to each other, and there are only about 500 people that they talk to. There's maybe 1,000 people that they talk to. And they reinforce each other's opinions of each other, and nothing gets in. They're indifferent to the arguments from outside of the sphere of genius that is Washington D.C., and therefore they get their egos get bigger and bigger and bigger. And I don't, I don't know the problem, the solution to this. It's, it's like an island governing the country.
1: Yeah, think of the uh, think of the advantage you've lost, which I still retain. I'm from out of town. I'm I, an expert. <laughs> I used to be <laughs> yeah, out of town, right, and, you know? and, but I still talk to out of town. But it is a, it is, it's not a one horse town. It's a one-conversation town, and there's a well put. S- and there's a set of uh, opinions about the conversation, and they divide left and right, and and uh, innovative opinions are rare. And so, if you're from out of town and you haven't heard all the talk for a month, and you say whatever you think about it, it's bound to sound different, and people are
0: kind of amazed. And and more often than not, they dismiss it because it's not from the hive. And if it's from not from the hive, it can't be good for the hive if it's not from the hive. When we come back from break, I want to ask you about C.S. Lewis and that hideous strength. Because if NICE ever existed, it's here in in, in the city of Washington, D.C. NICE being the National Institute. Continuing experiment. Continuing experiments from that hideous strength. Don't go anywhere, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Hillsdale College owns this bit of radio real estate. It is the last hour of the Hugh Hewitt Show, and my great sponsor, Hillsdale College, sends forth Dr. Larry Arnn to do battle with me each week and to slay me again, Uh, the eternal dragon that is always (laughs) down at the end of the hour. And uh, we have fun, but sometimes I I give way to my inner um, uh, distraught, actually, with the way things are in Washington, D.C., and Dr. Arnn talks me off the ledge, and we're doing that today. Um, the framers did not intend this to be easy. They intended it to be hard to pass a law, but it does make me crazy that the rules of the Senate allow for 30 hours of debate on a person for whom they will be voting anyway, that, that the opposition, the minority has been allowed to gum it up. The framers did not intend that they intended the Senate to be a check by virtue of its six year term, not by virtue of its arcane and absurd rules. When did we lose sight of that?
1: Yeah, well, the Senate process is—I'll tell you why it's critical right now. It's a critical. It, first of all, you're right; it was supposed to be hard, and the Senate senators were elected for a different term of years and by a different constituency than the House. Not quite so true anymore as it used to be, because they used to be elected by state legislatures, which was a good idea, by the way. Yes, it was um, kept kept the authority of the states represented in Washington D.C., which was the plan, but now. You see, the government has become so misshapen that to get the Constitution back, there requires to be some radical steps of restoration or change, which are synonyms, and that means the Congress would have to resume the legislative power. And I'll tell you what that means. In the last Congress, two-year Congress, they passed 300 bills. That's 150 a year, and that's about the average since the middle of the 19th century. But last year in the single year of the Obama administration 87,000 pages were added to the federal register. And that means the Congress passes a tiny percentage of the actual laws. And the complicated laws that they're trying to pass now would restore elements of the legislative authority back to the people who are elected for it. And it's dangerous if it's not there because you don't we don't know where all these things come from. And and they Are so, they are so numerous, so legion, that we have to hire experts to keep up with them. And even then, if you're accused of anything, you're, there's millions of words to know and nobody knows them. So the point is, this not functioning of the Senate is critical right now because here is an opportunity to take significant steps back toward limited government. And when they thwart that, then the And, you know, by the way, they are thwarting their own station. And remember, the reason I think that there's hope here, I do think it very much, I think, first of all, this president would sign bills that advocates bills that would restore the legislative power to the Congress, which means take it away from these agencies that are ostensibly in the executive branch, although nobody controls them. Uh, he would do that, right? And they are doing revolutionary things about controlling the bureaucracy in the in the White House counsel's office in the office of management and budget extremely well led places in the in the White House and 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 then you see Madison says the reason separation of powers will continue is because the ambition of the people who hold the offices will keep it and it took 80 years of trying but in the 60s the Congress gave away the legislative power And they did it for ambition. They did it. They thought we can erect a vast system to control and manage and guide much more, and we can be at the heart of it. That was a, that was a sophistry to which they succumbed. And they've been eaten alive
0: by the people that they created.
1: But that, but that makes the opportunity because they are actually openly held in contempt by the bureaucracy. Yes, they are, which doesn't answer their letters doesn't respond to their subpoenas. And so if they would just wake up, they could see that That's they the could big, be yeah. the great one of know, the greatest Congresses.
0: The person who is most despised in the Trump administration, not named Trump, is Scott Pruitt, the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, because he is most rigorous in returning the agency to its actual delegation of authority, not its presumption of power which is what the Obama era did with the Clean Power Plan and their water. And Scott Pruitt is an originalist. He's actually a constitutional lawyer, and he's carving it back to what it is supposed to be, clean water, clean air, uh, particulates at a certain level, what they told it to do, what the Congress actually delegated, but not what it imagined it might want to do. And so he's, held, uh, he's, he's one of the nicest men in the world, and he's very, very smart, but the left hates him as a result of that. So the left understands what's at stake here. Why don't Republican senators, Larry Arn understand what is at stake here? Or are they, and this is really the question, are they really Republicans? Uh,
1: let me just say that uh, I'm against remedial education. But I'm shaking on the question. <laughs> I mean, I can't. I, I, I will just tell you that I am astonished. I mean, first of all, you know, to put... To put the argument together about what the government used to be like and what it's like today takes some thought and some historical knowledge, and those are in short supply. And to focus on fundamental things takes both, right? And you described the city earlier. Isn't everybody just distracted by this endless swirl? Isn't it true that if you try to follow the policy issues that unfold in this city, you know, we're talking about taxes this morning and C.S. Lewis, which would be better. and but, but there's a million things we could talk about this morning because they're all going on all yeah. over the well, city right now.
0: Let me play for you. Senator Tom Cotton, a friend of ours, uh, took to the floor of the Senate on Wednesday of uh, this week and gave forth this little oration, which I like a lot.
3: So, Mr. President, I'm glad that you're here to to replace me as the presiding officer of the Senate. I just spent the last hour of the Senate presiding myself. Uh, For those of you here in the gallery who who don't know these things, I'll pull back the curtain a little bit. They call it presiding officer duty, not presiding officer privilege or honor, because it's reserved for the young senators who are new to the Senate, like Senator Sullivan and I. Um, But it also means that you actually have to listen to your colleagues' speeches, which doesn't happen very often around here anymore. So this morning, I had the privilege of listening to the Democratic leader's speech about our tax bill and the fact that we are going to repeal the hated mandate of Obamacare as part of this tax bill. And I just can't let stand what he said without correcting the record. First off, Senator from New York said that we're injecting health care into the tax bill, injecting health care into the tax bill, I would remind him and all the other Democrats who have been denouncing this decision on the Senate Finance Committee, that the individual mandate is a tax, according not to me, not to Republicans, but to the Obama administration. That is what they argued in 2012 to the Supreme Court, even though he contended throughout the debate on Obamacare in 2009 and 2010 that it wasn't a tax. In 2012, they argued to the Supreme Court that the Obamacare mandate is a tax, and the Supreme Court in 2012 upheld it as a tax. And I'm willing to bet, I'm willing to bet that the Democratic leader issued a statement in the summer of 2012 applauding that decision, which held that the individual mandate is a tax. After all, it's collected on your 1040. It's collected by the IRS. It doesn't get much more taxi than that.
0: All right. So first, it goes on. Taxi not being a word, and you might want to remind your friend Senator Cotton that it is not in fact a word. But what he's doing here is making an argument, and no one ever does that anymore.
1: If you believe,
0: uh, so first
1: of all, I, I we're going to become persuaded by the modern understanding of equality, which means you have to have equal outcomes. And that means we're going to have to regulate Tom Cotton
0: arguing with Chuck Schumer. (laughs) That's not fair. You know, Chuck Schumer did not rush to the floor. In the old days, they used to rush to the floor when you were being called out. And he did not rush to the floor. That would have been taking a a, a knife to a gunfight. Mark
1: how brilliant that was, though, see. Because it was not a tax when they were getting it passed. And that was right up there with keep your doctor. Yep. Right? And then... It goes before the Supreme Court, and John Roberts and their stories of John Roberts being in some kind of personal trial over this thing, he cast the deciding vote to call it a tax, and as a tax, it's constitutional, he said, and they all saluted that, and now, isn't it wonderful? It's yeah. like Brave New World, right? Nothing, it's like 1984. Now it's being injected like.
0: into the tax debate.
1: Yeah, that's right. Now I it's
0: mean, being so Now I happen to have believed the Chief Justice acted under the old uh, adage that if a law is passed, you must find a way to uphold it if there's any way to uphold it. So I've always defended his decision in Sibelius. That's the Obamacare decision. But that does not excuse Chuck Schumer attempting to say you're injecting healthcare into the tax debate when it's in fact a tax. But what is the, here's what gave me some some hope this week. Um Tom Cotton came up with this idea 2 weeks ago and it was such a good idea that the Senate actually adopted it. That so that wasn't on the table 2 weeks ago and 2 weeks ago Kevin Brady the chairman, very smart guy, very nice guy, told me that's not going to happen. And 2 weeks later it is going to happen in the house. And so people do listen if they pay any attention. The problem is Nobody ever pays any attention. Well, it, it, but see, that's, you're right. That's so hopeful, right?
1: Because a, a good idea, where is it born from? It's not born from creativity, it's, it's born from understanding first, right? Tom Cotton knows a lot about the Constitution. And uh, he's, a, he's an interesting senator because he doesn't get attention through stunts, he gets attention through things that senators would do. And he seems to know what that is.
0: And the New Yorkers, Jeffrey Tubin, uh, wrote a profile of him that was grudging in its admiration. I love the tone of the whole thing. He couldn't believe he was on a hog farm in Arkansas, and that Senator Cotton's uh, cattle farm, and that Senator Cotton's father couldn't shake hands with him because he just birthed a calf. He couldn't actually believe it, that 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 was happening to him. And I I would recommend it to everyone. When we come back. We're going to talk about Nice and T.S. Lewis and what has happened to the Senate and what the stakes are in this tax debate. Don't go anywhere, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. The last segment of the Radio Week. Dr. Larry Arn and I are back at C.S. Lewis here because in his last book, his, in his science fiction trilogy, That Hideous Strength, he posits a giant bureaucracy in which everybody talks but nobody answers, and nobody listens, and nothing is accomplished, and there is no plan. And it seems to me he had the Senate in mind, Larry yeah. Arn. uh And and it, it is becoming that quicksand-like to try and advance any idea through the Senate. And that will not last. And the reason we're concerned
1: about this is that the NICE is actually the National Institute for Continuing Experiments, which has taken over the whole of Great Britain in this novel. And just think, there's 150 or so agencies, and they pass nearly all of our laws. And we don't know what they are. And the courts respect them way too much, although the very great Neil Gorsuch might have some adjustment in that coming. And so... We would notice the, the dysfunctionality of the Senate, the dysfunction, excuse me, of the Senate, because there's something great for them to do, and to do it right now. And I happen to know, because I ask him, the leader would like to see that stuff done. Well, they got to get these things out of the way, right? And then they could go on about the business. And see, you could, if you make the regulatory agencies responsible to the representative's of the people, that makes the people more powerful. And if they can't get that through their thick skulls and vote that way, then, gosh, we need to get others.
0: Well, Patrick Leahy, uh, I hope Dwayne has this tape available. Patrick Leahy, who I call Senator Mumbles uh, from Vermont, represents, I don't know, 80 people, uh, uh, took on Don Willett, the justice of the Texas Supreme Court who's been nominated to the Fifth Circuit. And here's what he said to him. You talk about respecting presser. Every nominee before this panel, those that Senator Cornyn has voted for and those he's voted against, they said they respect a precedent. Um, But the um, Obergefell decision, you equated that constitutional right to same-sex marriage with a constitutional right to marry Bacon. You've argued the Supreme Court's Chevron decision hey, to right the What he's referring to is that Don Willett is very funny, and in a tweet after the Obergefell decision, he tweeted, I'm for the right to marry Bacon, and because he loves Bacon, and it's a funny joke. And And someone has handed this to Patrick Lay, who has no more idea of what he's saying than, the, than Matt knows about what I'm going to say next. And he, he, <laughs> or you. Or me. <laughs> and, and he comes back at it, and that's what passes for discussion in the United States Senate, and I think that's a crisis, actually.
1: Yeah, yeah, and the, the point about precedent is that we have two long strains of opposite precedents in American history now. And so you're going to have to pick, right? And precedent was never anything except respect for earlier decisions that are made according to some principle. And so if they, you know, I mean, look, there was a a long series of precedents that said that said what? That the federal government does not have the right to forbid uh, or to fail to protect slavery in the territories not yet incorporated as states. And the Republican Party was joined, was uh, born to change that practice and they did it on the basis of the text of the Constitution of the United States. That is the ultimate precedent.
0: And, and- if we could simply come to that agreement that the Senate gets to make its own rules and that the Senate can change its own rules and that it ought to change its own rules quickly. Cause I think that's where we're going. Pat Toomey's pretty upset with this situation. The blue slip is dead as of this week. I think there are, what do you say? Fundamental things are afoot. I think they are a foot in the Senate as well. Do you share that optimism that, that and Ron Johnson may have brought it to a head. People are just, yeah. are just disgusted. It,
1: it uh, and you know, you know, there's a mess in Alabama And so these are trying days, right? And they surely, and they must respond. And you've played some tapes from the leadership. They're pretty good. You know, there's some very talented people in the Senate. If people will perk up and listen, there's a way to go.
0: If they will think, I guess I close here. Disraeli was the great proponent of party in Great Britain. And you said at the beginning of the hour, Churchill uh, was not that great of a party man, but there are times to be a party man, and sometimes he was.
1: He was, he, he like uh, like Lincoln and like all the greatest statesmen, Churchill responded to principles that are beyond party, almost always through, through party. party. Uh, explain that. we got a minute left. Explain that. Well, the thing is, in, in America, political parties have no constitutional standing. Uh, they're only decried during the founding... And then immediately, when the government was set up, the they, founders, up. they set up political parties so they could coordinate action across the branches and geographically across states. That's what they're for.
0: And so if our Republican Party, if you are listening as you drive to work today, please coordinate your actions across the branches in pursuit of the principle of tax reform and a larger principle, which is you're all going to lose your jobs in 2018 if you don't get anything done. And thus far... Uh Neil Gorsuch is on the scorecard and a dozen appellate judges, and that's about it. (laughs) Dr. Larry, always a pleasure. I'll be on MSNBC tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. America, continuing the conversation of my missionary work there. Don't miss that, and I'll be back on Monday on the next Hugh Hewitt Show.